Then congregation, if you'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to Romans chapter 6, I will be reading a section of scripture from Romans 6 in your pew Bible. You can find that on page 1,298. After we read from scripture, we'll be turning our attention to the Belgic Confessions 24th article, and in your forms and prayers book, you can find that on page 178. This morning, as we continue our series through the summary of the Word of God, as we have it in the Belgic Confession, we come to that doctrine, that theological truth of sanctification. In light of that, we want to read from Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. Hear now together the Word of God. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise you also, Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Thus far this morning, our reading from the Word of God. Now we then turn to the Belgic Confession, Article 24. It's entitled, The Sanctification of Sinners. And it states there, We believe that this true faith produced in man by the hearing of God's Word and by the work of the Holy Spirit regenerates him and makes him a new man, causing him to live the new life and freeing him from the slavery of sin. Therefore, far from making people cold toward living in a pious and holy way, this justifying faith, quite to the contrary, so works within them that apart from it, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of love for themselves and fear of being condemned. So then it is impossible for this holy faith to be unfruitful in a human being, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls faith working through love which leads a man to do of himself the works that God has commanded in his word. These works, proceeding from the good root of faith, are good and acceptable to God, since they are all sanctified by his grace. Yet they do not count toward our justification, for by faith in Christ we are justified, even before we do good works. Otherwise they could not be good. Any more than the fruit of a tree could be good if the tree is not good in the first place. So then we do good works, but not for merit, for what would we merit? 
Rather, we are indebted to God for the good works we do, and not he to us, since it is he who works in us both to will and do according to his good pleasure, thus keeping in mind what is written when you have done all that is commanded you. Then you shall say, we are unworthy servants. We have done what it was our duty to do. Yet we do not wish to deny that God rewards good works, but it is by his grace that he crowns his gifts. Moreover, although we do good works, we do not base our salvation on them. For we cannot do any work that is not defiled by our flesh and also worthy of punishment. And even if we could point to one, memory of a single sin is enough for God to reject that work. So we would always be in doubt, tossed back and forth without any certainty, and our poor consciences would be tormented constantly if they did not rest on the merit of the suffering and death of our Savior. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we began this morning's service with a call to worship taken from 1 Peter 2, and as we gave that call to worship, we stressed that that verse expresses our identity. It expresses who we are. Now, a variety of things could be said about who we are. Uh, we could say that uh, we are people who live in a certain locality, a certain city. Uh, we could say that we are people who have a, a certain vocation, a, a certain calling in life. Uh, we could say that we are people who live in a certain family relationship. Uh, and so in addition to our personal first name, uh, we also have our family name. And, and so we might say, well, well, I'm, I'm a lover's. Or you might say, well, I'm a Vint White. Uh, all of these are certainly true, uh, but we also need to understand that we as a congregation have a spiritual identity. And First Peter identifies one of the most basic truths about our spiritual identity, that we are called to be a holy priesthood. But what does it mean to be holy? Uh, boys and girls, we're going to be using the word sanctified or sanctification this morning in our sermon. Uh, and that word sanctify or sanctification is closely connected to the word holy. Holy and sanctified and sanctification, it means to be set apart, to be special, to be precious. And, and so maybe, boys and girls, if you go to your uh, grandma's house, uh, maybe she has special china plates. Now, I can remember my grandma had some special plates. Uh, and if you were below 12, when you went to grandma's house for coffee time after the morning church service, if you were below 12, you did not get a special plate. You got what we would call a common plate. You also had to eat in the kitchen because the, the tendency of you to spill on her grandma's carpet was very high. So if you were below 12... You sat in the kitchen, and you used the common plate. But once you became 12, then you could sit in the living room with the adults, and then you got a, a special plate. We are called to be special people. We are special people. Special because, in part, of the holiness to which we are called. The church is one holy Catholic church. Our holiness certainly includes justification, the fact that we are declared righteous based upon the imputed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But our holiness also includes our sanctification. 
And now as we go forward in life together as a congregation, especially in the context of all sorts of various winds of doctrine, false doctrine also, uh, we need to remember that justification and sanctification are not the same thing. So we always have to be clear uh, to distinguish justification and sanctification. But while we have to be clear in distinguishing them one from another, we must also be emphatically clear that both are benefits that come out of the Lord Jesus Christ, and both are benefits which the church and the Christian receives. So justification, that affects our state before God. And in justification, God declares a person righteous based upon the transfer of righteousness from Christ to that person. In sanctification, which affects our condition, God, especially by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit, actually makes his people holy. So we want to consider that this morning for our encouragement and also for the glory of God. Underneath this theme, our belief concerning sanctification. We'll notice, first of all, the cause of sanctification, and then secondly, the reason for sanctification, and then thirdly, the product of sanctification. So our belief concerning sanctification, first of all, then the cause, secondly, the reason, and thirdly, the product of sanctification. When we consider the cause of sanctification, pastorally, I want to be very clear this morning, sanctification is not something that we do by ourselves. There's a dangerous tendency to think, okay, yes, justification, the forgiveness of sins, that's something that God does in his grace, that's something that Christ has accomplished, and then the danger is that we begin to think, now sanctification is something that I need to go out and that I need to do. And this can creep into Reformed pulpits and into Reformed congregations uh, with a tendency towards moralism. Uh, and so a stirring sermon, perhaps, is given that amounts to nothing more than last week wasn't really that good, try to make next week better, better in a moral realm. Just go out and try not to slander as much. Just go out and, and, and try to love your neighbor a little bit better. Just go out and try to have more devotional time with the Lord your God. See what you can do this week, and we'll meet again next Sunday morning at 9.30, and we'll see how we accomplish uh, but if we truly know ourselves and our own tendencies, that's not good news. If you know yourself, as I know myself, if this morning's message on sanctification is just go out and for the next week try to do the best that you can do in all of the realms of morality, it will be a most discouraging week. But thanks be to God, the cause of sanctification is not ourselves, but is rather our sovereign, redemptive God. So if you're taking notes in your mind or on paper where you have the cause of sanctification, I would just put the Lord God. The Lord God is the cause, the ultimate cause of the sanctification of his people. Now the Lord God uses means, uh, and so he works, we'll notice first of all in the subpoint there, uh, through his word and then also through the spirit. So the Word of God is the, the means, and by means we mean the, the tools, the tool that God uses, the triune God uses, to sanctify his people. And you can think of passages such as Romans 10, verse 17, which says that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. 
You can think also of 1 Peter 2, verse 2, especially the second part of that verse, uh, which says that the Christian is to desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, God is the sovereign agent of our conversion or of our sanctification. God is the one who causes us to be uh, holy, but he does so through the blessed proclamation of his word so that that word as it is preached and as it is taught, as it is read, as it is meditated upon by the Christian becomes the life-giving source of a true, genuine, living act of faith that embraces, holds on to the Lord Jesus Christ and receives all of the benefits that are in Jesus Christ, including the spiritual transformation which we call sanctification. And so the first point of application this morning, if we understand this rightly, if we understand God is the sovereign agent of conversion or of regeneration or of sanctification, and if God uses his word to accomplish that transformation in our life, we ought to have a high appreciation for the word of God. Ultimately, this right here, the inspired word of God, is the only tool that can change a person's soul, a person's heart. Now, certainly other means can engage in some type of behavior modification. But the only thing that can really change the inner person is the word of God. And if we understand this, then the Word of God ought to continue to have a place of priority in all that we do as a congregation. Uh, that's why the, the Word of God is preeminent in our worship services. That's why we begin our sermon with a reading of the Word of God. That's why we leave our Bibles open uh, as the sermon continues. Uh, that's why in the teaching uh, of the various Sunday school and catechism classes, uh, there is an emphasis upon the Word of God. That's why also in our Bible studies, we study the Word of God because the Word of God has the inherent power because it is just that, the Word of God, to change persons. Not only does faith come by the Word, which is the cause of sanctification, but also, of course, by the Spirit. Reformed theology uses the word regeneration in, in two different aspects, a narrower aspect and a broader aspect. Speaking about the narrower aspect, regeneration is an instantaneous moment in which the Holy Spirit gives new spiritual life within the soul. More broadly speaking, regeneration can be viewed as synonymous with conversion, a lifelong experience by which the old man of sin, the sinful thoughts, the sinful inclinations, the sinful tendencies, more and more are put to death, and the new man, holiness, righteousness, comes to fruit within a person's life. And it is the Holy Spirit, that third person of the Trinity, uh, who especially is active in this sanctifying process, in this renewing process, by which the mind of the Christian comes to a greater understanding of wisdom, and in which the will of the Christian begins and continues to renounce their own selfish will and to follow after the will uh, of their redeeming God. And the affections, the, the loves, and the joys of a person's very being are drawn more and more to the things of God and to the kingdom of God. 
Uh, this here is accomplished uh, as the presence of sin is gradually eradicated by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so there ought to be, and there must be, a proper balance between the Word and the Spirit. We said that the Word of God is the only thing that can change a person's soul. But not to be funny, but just by way of illustration, uh, that doesn't mean that we go around with our Bibles uh, and, and just smack people over the head with the Word of God and say, there, I hit you with the Word of God, I'm expecting a change. Oh, we need the Holy Spirit to apply that Word of God to the heart of the individual person. And, and this can especially be helpful for office bearers, but also for anyone in a position of authority uh, or of uh, guidance, whether it be parents, whether it be grandparents. Uh, when dealing with an individual uh, and in dealing with sin within the life of an individual, yes, indeed, the emphasis is upon the word, but also with dependency upon the spirit. Because I can bring the word, you can bring the word, but only the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, can bless that word to the actual transformation of a person's heart. I can point out someone's sin, but only the Holy Spirit can convict a person of their sin. So as we labor together as a Christian congregation, we must have a mutual recognition of the importance of the word and of the Spirit. Uh, and so we can transition then, if we understand that properly, uh, to the reason for sanctification. Uh, and, and here you might say it another way, why, why should the Christian walk in holiness? Why? Well, we're justified, we're declared righteous. What does it matter what we do? And, and there have been and there continue to be false teachings and imbalanced emphases uh, that follow what we call an, an antinomian spirit. Antinomian, uh, a compound word meaning against the anti. And, and then the nomian comes from a word for law. So against law. And antinomianism, which has been around in the church all the way probably since the Old Testament beginning of the church, especially in the New Testament, uh, you find certain persons who were characterized by moral licentiousness. We can do whatever we want because we're the people of God. Antinomianism says, well, we're justified freely by grace. So it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. We can sin all we want. Now, I don't think any of us would be as bold and as brash as saying that, but we always need to be aware of imbalances in our theology. So why is it uh, that we ought to be concerned uh, with sanctification? Uh, first of all, because sanctification is a fruit of faith. Uh, now, there's a saying that is quite helpful. It's not original with me, although perhaps I'm paraphrasing it to some extent. Uh, but a saying that is quite helpful, and that again, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to, uh, to write this saying down. The faith that justifies is faith alone. But that faith is never all alone. Maybe you say, well, that, that's extremely confusing. I'll explain it in a moment. But we believe that we are justified by faith alone. 
But that faith is never alone in the sense that true, saving, active faith will display itself by good works. Now here we want to be crystal clear. Our good works, good works which we do, which we'll consider a little bit more in our third point, are not the basis or the ground in any way of our acceptance with God. We've said that over the past couple of weeks, but I just want to say it again this morning so that our souls are not distressed. The works which we do are not in any way part of our legal standing before God. That is entirely accomplished once and for all by the work of Jesus Christ. And and, and the righteousness of Christ is received through the simple exercise of faith, which is a knowledge of who Christ is and a trust in who Christ is and a resting in what Christ has done. And so again this morning, there is a wonderful opportunity to proclaim the crystal clear call of the gospel uh, that for you and for myself and for anyone who may hear these words to be received in God's favor, there simply must be belief on the Lord Jesus Christ. Belief in the sense that you know who he is, you understand what he has done in his redemptive work, especially in his death and in his resurrection, and that you trust or you rely, you put all of your hope, all of your confidence in him and what he has done. If you do that, there is the declaration that your sins are forgiven and you are right with God. If you do not do that, no matter what else you may do, if you don't rest upon the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are not right with God. But today, of course, is the day of grace because we still speak these words and we still hear these words. So do not rely upon your own works, but rather upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But true, saving, genuine act of faith, according to James 5, verse 22, where James says, do you see that faith was working together with Abraham's works, and by works faith was made perfect? True, saving, genuine faith will display its fruit of a holy life, of a new life, of a transformed life, of a life that loves the commandments of God even as it grieves the fact that we don't perfectly follow the commandments of God. Uh, This is a holy faith as also described in Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the, the evidence upon act of faith is the production of good works. But also... The reason for sanctification is out of gratitude towards God. Uh, John 14, verse 21, Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And I I want to be clear this morning uh, that sanctification or holiness or a consecrated life flows out of love towards God gratitude to God. And I want to just ask you, and I'm not saying that you have to use these words, but in your prayers recently, if you you think maybe upon the past week of your own personal prayers, 
Have you sincerely said in prayer, God, I love you. Again, I'm not saying you have to use those exact words. But has your soul said to your redeeming God, I love you. I love you because of who you are. I love you because of what you have done. There can be a dangerous tendency in Reformed churches to preach on sanctification with the thunderings of Sinai, so to speak. You know, and to to bang your fist on the pulpit and, and to speak with all the volume that you could muster. To try to knock it into people's heads to go out and live a holy life. But I wonder sometimes if that's the biblical way. Now, certainly there are times for passion in the Christian life and in the pulpit. But holiness of life should be motivated by love for God. If we love him, we will want to keep his commandments. You know, sometimes husbands... Uh, they don't really understand all that much, perhaps, and maybe the wives in the congregation will quickly agree. And, and so maybe a husband will come for counseling and say, well, you know what, my wife just doesn't love me, and I've told her she has to love me. I've read her all kinds of Bible passages, and I've said, hey, this is what the scriptures say. And if you don't start loving me, I'm going to call the elders, and we're going to have an intervention. You can't just demand something. But if you perhaps are more loving yourself, it'll be the response uh, of, of a reciprocal love. And so this morning, I don't just want to pound my fist on the pulpit and say, now you go out and you love your God a little bit more this week. I want to say, behold, what manner of love is this, that the Father gave his only begotten Son to redeem us, to be a holy people. See, holiness isn't about us. It's not about what benefit it brings us. Certainly there are personal benefits to a life of holiness, but ultimately holiness, sanctified life, should be our response that flows out of our love towards God. And so when you ask yourself the question, have you said in your prayers to God, I love you? Doesn't that motivate you to want to show that love by a holy life? I would also encourage us to study God. The more we truly study him, the more we'll come to know him, and the more you come to know God, the more you come to love God. And so the reason for holiness, the reason for a sanctified life by the church should be, as our faith expresses itself, and as we motivate out of gratitude towards God. But in connection with that, because we love the Lord our God, there should be a concern that our God's name would not be blasphemed on account of us. 
And what I mean by this is the world is watching us. We are a group of persons who have professed to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and to follow the Christian religion. And that is a countercultural profession. And when you say something like that, you draw the attention of the watching world. And so you might say, everyone is watching us. And when they see, when they see moral failure, they mock our God. And if you don't believe me, you can look in scriptures. And you can also find evidence within experience. I, I can well remember a man that I worked with in the construction site. Now, he was not a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but he knew that I was, along with some other individuals uh, on the crew. And he would watch us. And any time we said or did something contrary to the Christian faith, he would have this lightning bolt of a statement, and he would say, is that what they teach you in your church? The man didn't have a care for religion at all. But he knew we were professing Christians. And he watched and he saw every single inconsistency. Now in no way am I implying that we can achieve a life of perfection. But if we love God above all, our greatest concern would be that we somehow by a serious moral failure, would make the world mock our God. And so that in and of itself ought to motivate us to a life of holiness that produces the fruit, uh, as we note briefly in our third point, because we've already touched on it a bit, and we'll come back to it in due time, that sanctification will produce good works. What are good works? Most catechism students are taught well, especially with the Heidelberg Catechism, that a truly good work, a work that has morality to it, a work that is uh, approved by God, includes three things. First of all, it must be done out of true, living, active faith. And there's a reason for that, uh, which we'll consider in just a moment. Uh, but good works are those which flow out of faith. Good works are also those which are done according to the commandments of God. And good works are those which have a goal or a purpose for the glory of God alone. So those three criteria, and it's not just one of them, but all three of them combined evaluate a good work. Now, a note of clarification, even the best of our works, according to Scripture, according to the prophet, are but filthy rags. The best work that we can possibly muster. You can think back in this past month, uh, the best of your work, whatever it may be. Maybe you had... A season in prayer, a time in prayer in which you thought your words flowed well, you thought your heart's intent was sincere. Or maybe it was a worship service in which you sang with all of the gusto that you could muster and you listened with attentiveness and you experienced a unity with your fellow brother and sister. And so you say, that was a wonderful worship service. You take your best work, I take my best work, still stained with sin, still sanctified ultimately by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, still presented unto God through Jesus Christ. 
Now, that's not to deny the reality of good works, but it is to point out the continual need for the Lord Jesus Christ in all aspects of our worship. Now, that's why many of us were taught from a young age, and properly so, to conclude our prayers for Jesus' sake. That's why we present our worship services to God through Jesus Christ. That's why we're pointed out the continual need for the forgiveness of sins and for the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But these works are received by our Heavenly Father because as we heard in our text of pardon, God is a God who is filled with compassion and with mercy and with grace to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our Heavenly Father is pleased to reward our good works, even though those good works are not perfect works, even though those good works are presented unto him through the Lord Jesus Christ. The reward is out of grace, not out of merit. You might think of a father, an earthly father, by way of an analogy, uh, in interacting with his son. He may say, son, here's a task I want you to do. And the son, out of a a love towards the father and out of a willingness and an eagerness to please the father, goes out and with all of his ability performs this work. But yet, because he's a child, he doesn't do the work perfectly. And yet the father looks with a smiling approval based upon his love for the son and gives him a reward. I've told some of you this, some of the best memories that I have in my childhood. Now, it was spent plowing a field on my father's John Deere 3010 with a three-row plow behind, three-bottom plow behind. Up and down I went. Now, my father, like most farmers, took great pride in the straightness of everything on the farm, straightness of the rows of corn, straightness of the plowed field. Being 10, 12 years old, I didn't always plow the straightest, but my father didn't criticize. And perhaps he would pay me for the plowing that I did. Out of grace, you might say, he overlooked the imperfections because he was my father. And I I desired to plow as straight as I possibly could to please my father. That's just a faint analogy, but that's the way the Christian life is lived. As Christians, we have a desire, do we not, to please our Heavenly Father? To experience His favor? And so, by the Word and by the Spirit, we seek to offer our lives in holiness unto Him. But we recognize the imperfections. And so we present ourselves and our lives to him through Jesus Christ and the heavenly father looks with grace and with mercy and with compassion and rewards us ultimately with eternal life based upon the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and so there is this certain hope even as we walk in holiness not that our entrance into heaven will be gained upon the merits of our good works no that's only the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we desire to experience the smiles of our God. And because we love him, and because we seek that his name would be honored and not blasphemed by us, we ought to give due diligence by the power of the Holy Spirit, present the entirety of our lives into his service uh, as our spiritual act of worship. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, We glorify your name because you are a great God and because you have done great things 
not only accomplishing our justification through the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but also providing all that is necessary for our sanctification. Lord, we pray that we would be kept from the deadly danger of thinking uh, that this is a work which we now must do in and of ourselves. But we also pray, Lord, that we might press on, uh, that as the work of the Holy Spirit blesses the word to our soul, that we might pursue holiness, knowing that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So, Father, we ask that we as a congregation might not be the reason for the world to mock or to blaspheme your name, uh, but may we bring praise, honor, and glory to you in all aspects of our life. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.